0: nation should I say further judge our nation so Lord we want to be sober but Lord we want to be also full of faith are you saved all each other Saved 11 title of the sermon today is Jesus judgment and woes is a means of grace Jesus judgment and woes is a means of grace We're continuing our series on Matthew. We're learning a lot uh, that's really serving our souls. But overall, the thing that's really attracting, should attract our attention is we get to see the beauty and the majesty and the wisdom and the power of Jesus Himself as He reveals Himself through the Gospel. Um, In chapter 10, this part of Matthew we're in, chapter 10, uh, we saw Jesus addressing the twelve. He called the twelve, the twelve disciples, twelve apostles they would be. He called them to Himself and he, and he taught them specifically. Then as we learned last week, uh, in chapter beginning of chapter 11, Jesus then took the twelve and began to preach in the cities where they were from. And uh, first He addresses uh, the disciples of John who come to ask a question. So he's, He has one tone when He's talking to them. Then He turns, and there's a crowd there, and He addresses the crowd in a little bit different tone. Um, And now we see Him turning in our text, starting in verse 16. He first speaks to this generation, and so His tone changes, and He speaks differently. Then He speaks to these cities, and His tone changes again. And Jesus gives them a warning of coming judgment. We might think about this judgment from Jesus like perhaps a warning if there's a hurricane coming to a coastal city or state like the Hurricane Katrina. You may remember Hurricane Katrina, it's massive hurricane that caused a lot of damage. A little research, history.com records that Hurricane Katrina made landfall in near New Orleans, Louisiana, as a Category 3 hurricane on August 29, 2005. Despite being only the third most powerful storm of 2005 hurricane season, Katrina was among the worst natural disasters in the history of the United States. The wake of the storm, there were over 50 failures of levees and flood walls around New Orleans and its suburbs. The levee and floodwall failures caused widespread flooding. Now, New Orleans Mayor Ray Nagin ordered a mandatory evacuation of the city on August 28th when Katrina uh, briefly achieved a Category 5 status and the National Weather Service predicted devastating damage to the area but an estimated 150,000 residents of New Orleans who either did not want to or did not have the resources to leave, ignored the order and stayed behind. The storm brought sustained winds of 145 miles per hour which cut power lines and destroyed homes, even turning cars into projectile missiles. Katrina caused record storm surges all along the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And these surges overwhelmed the levees that protected New Orleans, which is located six feet below sea level from Lake Pontchartrain and the Mississippi River. Soon, 80% of the city was flooded up to the rooftops for many houses and smaller buildings. As many as 50,000 people sought refuge at the New Orleans Convention Center and the Superdome. situation in both places quickly deteriorated as food and water ran low and conditions became unsanitary. Frustration mounted as it took up to two days for a full-scale relief effort to begin. In the meantime, these stranded residents suffered from heat, hunger, and a lack of medical attention. Reports of looting, rape, and even murder began to surface and all it is believed that the hurricane caused more than 1,800 deaths and up to 150 billion dollars in damages to both private property and public infrastructure. One million people were displaced by the storm, a phenomenon unseen in the United States since the Great Depression. 400,000 people lost their jobs as a result of the disaster. How different might it have been if those 150,000 people had indeed heeded the warning and fled from the coming destruction? We will read our text and consider and heed the warnings of the Lord Jesus Christ so we don't suffer in even a greater way. So reading in Matthew chapter 11, we'll begin in verse 16. This is God's Word. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Will you be exalted to heaven? No. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. May God bless the preaching, believing, and obeying of His Word. Let's pray. Lord, we we ask that You let Your Word weigh on our souls, stimulate our minds, create in us a hunger for You and a desire to obey. Lord, we pray You help us, help us to hear. Lord, help me to speak for Your glory In Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what I think the big idea is from this passage that we're reading today. Jesus, Lord of creation and redemption and mercy, proclaims a coming judgment to a wicked and perverse generation as a means for repentance. Jesus declares judgment as a means for repentance. Three points and a conclusion. Unresponsive generation, unrepentant cities, undaunted Christians, and to close, undaunted love of the Savior. First, an unresponsive generation. Jesus spoke to His generation which was unresponsive and His words speak to our generation as well. The flute in this parable that Jesus told represents the preaching of Jesus. John the Baptist on the other hand was a wild man in the desert, far from comfort. John ate grasshoppers who wore clothing made of camel's hair. From before his birth, the angel Gabriel declared that John must not drink wine or strong drink. Jesus on the other hand drank wine, reclined at table with sinners. John was remote, Jesus was approachable. However, the same Jesus, the same approachable Jesus in Scripture Addresses the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and there his divine might is revealed in a vision to his disciple John, the evangelist. John saw one like a son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its fullness. John fell unconscious at this vision of Jesus. Those flaming eyes in Revelation saw through the pretense and the hypocrisy and the disobedience of those churches in the book of Revelation. And those flaming eyes look into our souls every time we sit under the preaching of God's Word. And those flaming eyes look at our generation as well, our unresponsive generation. In the light of the terrible judgment that is to come, it is shocking, really, to see the tenderness of the Lord in this playful analogy of children in the marketplace. Jesus is winsome. He says, to what shall I compare this generation? In Matthew 16 Jesus calls that generation an evil and adulterous generation, Apostle Paul calls it a crooked and twisted generation in Philippians, much like our generation, and we'll see a little later in Matthew, Jesus doesn't pull any punches, but here Jesus is winsome. He says, to what will I compare this generation, well, you're like children, really? You're not taking me seriously. You think I'm a joke. Child's play. But maybe this will help you. He's saying, in effect, my father and I played a flute for you. Some commentators believe that this flute represents actually a wedding song. The children were playing wedding or marriage in the marketplace, and there was this flute calling the children to play this marriage game. Jesus is saying, we invited you to a wedding. In creation my Father spoke the Word and I was the Word and the mighty Holy Spirit came and created all of creation and created a wedding venue. We cast the galaxies and the vastness of space and time as the roof. We fill the hall with every kind of beautiful plant and flower We also put, along with them, every kind of fascinating, glorious animal. We placed a backdrop of majestic mountains and a vista of magnificent oceans. All of them came from us and point to us. And at the center of the wedding venue, we placed a marriage. To point to the marriage. We placed man Male and female, two beings that become one in marriage, equal but unique, one leading, one following, both worshiping. This marriage, beginning in the garden, points to the glorious consumption of all things, the day when every tear will be wiped away, when there will be war no more, when sorrow and sighing have gone away. This human marriage points to the divine marriage, the marriage of Christ and His church. And oh, is that a glorious marriage that we'll be part of someday. Someday Jesus will come back for his bride. He will usher in his kingdom in its fullness. And although it's hard to see now, all the warring rebellion of the nations, all the worshipful witness of the saints, all the pain, all the sorrow, all the suffering, all the joy, all the majesty is going to one day bring Jesus back, point to him that day when he returned to the glory to claim his kingdom for himself. That's what all this points to, that's what all this is about. It all is pointing to that great wedding, that great marriage. Therefore this marriage begun in the garden between man and woman is not just a decoration, It's not just a social construct to provide help. Marriage between man and woman is gravity. And if you destroy marriage, the society will break apart and float away. But to what shall I compare this generation, Jesus asks. You will not dance to the beautiful music from our flute, you have broken marriage. Even many who call themselves by my name have hardened their hearts and broken their vows in disobedience. And then some ignore my clear directives and go and marry again. They might have devoted themselves to me." This generation has called evil good by rejecting the holiness of marriage. To what shall I compare this generation? Rather than rejoicing the beauty of your unique identity as a man or woman, women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This generation has changed marriage from a living example of God's glory as a pointer to the divine marriage. Instead, it has turned it into something rubber lifeless, that can be stretched over anything and everything or just thrown into the trash. That's this generation. This generation approves the rejection of every essence, the very essence of the created order of the male and female body. This generation applauds the desecration of bodies made in the divine image even to the point of regendering children. In vain attempt to reject God's creation and destroy His order. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. But to what shall I compare this generation? We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Jesus played the wedding flute and the generations would not dance. John the Baptist sang a dirge calling the nations, the generations to grieve over over their sin. But they would not mourn. Instead of the singing the song of repentance over the misery of sin, the nations sing a song of war. Look around the world and see generation after generation locked into violence tyranny, wars, and rumors of wars. 100 million individuals have been forcibly displaced worldwide as a result of persecution, the conflict of war, violence, or human rights violations. We see the old beast of Revelation raising his head again to gobble up the weak nations. Subject men to slavery. Why does this happen? Psalm 2 helps us understand it. Why do the people rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth that set themselves against, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His appointing, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Not only do we see other nations rebelling against the Lord and His anointed, but our own nation is trying to burst their bonds apart. Rather than embracing the humility required to form a more perfect union, this generation in this nation has degenerated into tribal turf wars and political battlegrounds. We think we don't have to be charitable and believe the best as the Bible calls us to. No, no. We don't have to protect, protect one another's reputations. No. We are safely in our tribe. And are free to mock and slander and believe the very worst possible about others made in God's image. The greatest victim is the truth. This generation divides into tribes and if my tribe doesn't like your tribe we just call you liars. We just say you're lying. During the nuclear age, which we are still in, there was a term that developed, it was called mutual assured destruction. MAD, it was the idea that if a nuclear war started, it would destroy all of civilization, destroy both of the nations because they had that capability. This this twisting the truth, this unwillingness to listen has been called mutually assured epistemological destruction. Epistemology is the study or the philosophy of knowledge. It's how we know what we know. And it's one of the great cancers in our society that we just say it's a lie if we don't like it. If we align ourselves with political groups that gain power through unprovable conspiracy theories through claiming as fact what is in fact only what we suspect or wish were fact, then we have lost sight of the truth and been caught up in the raging of the nations. We don't have to buy into the so-called truth peddled by political parties or news media or by some YouTube channel. Do you live in that world? Do you spend hours diving into worldly sources and drinking their bitter cup of rage? Beware. Beware. It is a Trojan horse. Yes, there may be some interesting things, but it's bitter. It's the spirit of the world. Is your view of the world darkened by cynicism and sarcasm? This time I looked, cynicism was not a fruit of the spirit. Are you drinking that by what you listen to and look at? We know the truth, personally. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus gave us direction how we, what we listen to, how we form our decisions how we curb our tongue how we should be charitable. Instead of doing that we should mourn. Instead of Trusting the plotting of man to fix our broken world, we should lament and cry out to God of mercy. There is a better way. Psalm two, chapter Psalm two, verse eleven says this: Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Matthew chapter 11 verse 20 Jesus' tone changes again as He moved from addressing this generation to pronouncing woes over unrepentant cities. Point number two, unrepentant cities. Biblical history is littered with the charred and fossilized remains of cities, civilizations that ignored warnings of impending danger, impending judgment from God. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah come to mind immediately. Genesis tells us that a great outcry had come against these cities and their sin was very grave. Genesis graphically reveals the shameful, sexual, homosexual sins that were flagrantly committed without censure. In their inflamed lust, the men of Sodom demanded to rape the angels sent by God. Ezekiel adds to that saying, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, They did not help the poor and needy. Chillingly similar to this generation. Righteous lot was warned to flee the coming judgment. Lot tried to warn his future sons-in-law, but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting, the Bible says. Perhaps that helps explain why Jesus used this analogy of children in a marketplace. People who don't who reject God believe judgment from God is just a joke, just a jest, something to laugh at, ha ha ha. Did some research, the website got Questions records that Tyre and Sidon have a long history with the people of Israel. King Hiram of Tyre, you may remember, provided many of the temple furnishings for Solomon in 1 Kings 7. Tyrians and Sidonians were also mentioned in helping rebuild the temple in Ezra's time, Ezra 3. But it should not have been so. We're told God had assigned Tyre and Sidon to the tribe of Asher to conquer when the Jews settled in the Promised Land. The tribe of Asher, however, disobeyed God when they found Tyre and Sidon well fortified, Joshua 19, and they gave up. Ever since then Tyre and Sidon, both pagan cities, had been thorns in the sight of Israel and often led it into idolatry. Judge 10 tells us, Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the asterisks, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon. The evilest queen in the history of Israel, Jezebel, was from Sidon. So, in light of those truths about these wicked cities, let's read again the text in Matthew eleven 20. Let's refresh our, our minds. Read God's Word with me, if you will. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, the Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done entire in, in Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon and for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Woe, the word woe, is an exclamation of grief, distress, or lamentation. When Jesus prophesies woe over city, it is a mixture of judgment and pity. So even knowing a bit about the history of Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon, it's hard for us to fully imagine the impact of Jesus were on this crowd. They would be like, no way. Are our cities worse than those evil cities that were terrible in the history of Israel? No way, they would say. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were apparently not wicked cities. They, they may have been nice cities. Peter, Andrew, James, and John came from Bethsaida. Capernaum was where Jesus' ministry was centered. These are the cities where Jesus did most of His miracles. Capernaum, Jesus, Matthew 8 tells us, healed the centurion's paralyzed servant. healed Peter's mother-in-law. Matthew 9 tells us He healed the paralytic and told him to rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He raised the daughter of the ruler from the dead. He healed a woman who had the discharge of blood for 12 years. He healed two blind men, delivered a possessed man. Mark says a different place, he de- delivered a, a possessed man in a synagogue. John 4, he healed the official son of a high fever. That was just in Capernaum. There are many other miracles aren't recorded. Now listen, these miracles were famous. Everybody knew about them. Many people saw them. Crowds began to follow Jesus because of them, as we see in this text, and they heard the gospel preached. These cities were no Babylon or Pyongyang, North Korea, or Las Vegas. No, these cities were like Copley, or Akron, or Medina, or Wadsworth, or Stowe. Jesus revealed His divine knowledge of omniscience. As God, Jesus even knows what would have been. Theologians call this contingent knowledge. Jesus knew that even though Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom were very wicked cities, they would have repented had He done in them what He did in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were actually more wicked than those cities because they actually saw and heard Jesus. They heard Him, they saw Him, but they did not repent. It is a cautionary tale for us Frederick Dale Bruner in his book The Christ Book comments on Matthew 11 and he says this, Christian communities are in special trouble on Judgment Day not because Jesus has not really been in the communities because He has. Every member of the church has Jesus for Jesus is present in His Word, fellowship and sacraments. But Jesus does not have every member of His church He only has those who, under the impact of this miraculous grace, are actually changing. As we sit here in this nice church, in this nice city. We feel the heat of those flaming eyes fixed on us. The text demands, we ask of ourselves, are we changing? Are you changing? Is God's grace changing you? Are Copley, Akron, and Medina and Stowe changing under the impact of Jesus' miraculous grace? If it's not, it will be more tolerable in the day of the coming wrath for Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon than for the cities where we live. They've had the risen Christ proclaimed to them. Many great civilizations have dominated the world. The Mongols once ruled all of Asia. However, Mongolia was counted as one of the world's least developed countries in the 20th century. Through Alexander the Great, Greece once ruled uh, Syria, Phoenicia, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Persia, Afghanistan, and India. Today, Greece is a small, struggling island nation. Rome once ruled the known world. Today its influence is massively reduced largely to tourism and the Roman Catholic Church. America is said to be the greatest nation on earth. But if America does not repent it likewise will perish and be cast onto the ash heap of history. In the midst of an unresponsive generation living in unrepentant cities, we are called to live as undaunted Christians. Point number three, undaunted Christians. The preaching of Jesus here is meant to strengthen our understanding and embolden our witness. Daniel Doriani I mentioned before in his lessons from Matthew gives us six excellent insights into Matthew chapter 11. I couldn't improve upon them. I'm going to show them to you. You won't have time to write them down but they will be posted uh, on the website this week. Just let them inform your mind and your heart. See exegetes, helps exegete this text. First he says, God is the only one truly competent judge for He alone knows all things." Every human judgment is based on imperfect knowledge. Secondly, God is sovereign. He does not owe revelation to anyone. He is not unjust to have given more light to Israel, but He does judge people according to the light they have. The more light, the more judgment. Third, there is corporate as well as individual responsibility. All societies harden their hearts to God and they fall into certain sinful patterns for decades, even generations. So, so, that's why sometimes we pray repentance for our nation, for our city. There's a corporate responsibility asymmetrical, much more responsible for the individual than for the nation, but, but that, that's a thing that we have to grapple with. Fourth, those who claim to be religious are often the most hard hearted of all. The religious think they often have everything all worked out. They know their doctrines, their duties, are pleased with their knowledge and virtue. Meanwhile, they despise others. Fifth, we should not shy away from Jesus' teaching on judgment and hell, even if it seems unpopular. Heaven and hell are eternal realities and it's both right and helpful to tell people so. Six, let us labor wisely in our missional work. Jesus said, Tyre, Sidon, Sodom, Sodom, unlikely places all could have come to faith other likely cities Alexandria, Ephesus, Rome became centers of the early church. So that informs our desire to reach the world with the the gospel no matter how hard it looks we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Undaunted Christians look beyond the fallen world to follow a risen Christ. He is and will be exalted among the nations. So without fear we preach the whole gospel. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 tell us that the wrath of God is coming for all who practice wickedness, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We are to proclaim that. However, We proclaim that coming wrath with trembling. Because we know, from Ephesians 2, that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, yes, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus so why so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us through jesus christ that is what has happened to we who were sinners and still sin God's grace and mercy saves us and delivers us. This is only possible because of the cross of Christ. Because God, the Son, Jesus Christ, died for our sins. If you are here this morning, you're not a Christian. You have not giving your life to Christ. You, you may be thinking something like, okay, yeah, typical, right? These Christians think they're better than everyone else. They look down on people who are just trying to figure out how to live in a messed up world. Yeah, my life's messed up. It's hard. I don't, I don't know how to figure things out. I just do what I know how to do. I, I get it. I get it. It's, not, it's actually sad, but not surprising. I've already said some religious people can be very hard-hearted, Perhaps even many who call themselves religious are actually just self-righteous. But those who really understand forgiveness through Jesus know, deep down in our hearts we know we're not better than anyone else. As they say the ground is level at the cross. It is in love that we proclaim the coming wrath of God. If you don't know the Lord, you haven't given your life to the Lord, you may love your life. You may be in a situation you don't know how to fix, how to make it right, but if you aren't living for Jesus, you're living six feet below sea level and a hurricane is coming. We stand as those who were also headed for destruction and were rescued. If I narrowly avoid death, by death from the rising waters and then run back to tell others, I'm no better than they. The gospel rescued me. And the gospel is good news because there is a coming wrath. And the gospel delivers us from that wrath. So, While we explain the coming wrath, we proclaim that God sent His Son to take that wrath for all who believe. We live in a war zone now, but we're invited to a wedding. You may think that you must go and get better before you can come to Christ. No, we all come just as we are. The church is not a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. We all need help. Come, friend. You will not be rejected. Jesus died for your sins. Join us at the feast and gain Christ Himself. Jesus Lord of creation and redemption in mercy proclaims a coming judgment to wicked and perverse generation as it means for repentance and salvation. Even to a world that hated and crucified Him, Jesus still extends an undying love. In conclusion, the undying love of the Savior. Jonah was the reluctant prophet of the Old Testament. Everybody knows about Jonah, right? He was swallowed by the, by the great fish. God called Jonah to proclaim coming wrath and destruction for the wicked city of Nineveh. God said to him, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah refused at first because he hated Nineveh and he knew God was a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relented from disaster. He did not want to go because he knew God might forgive them if they responded to his prophecy about judgment. When he finally did go, just some loving prompting from the Lord, Jonah did not proclaim God's love or mercy. He didn't offer salvation. He simply proclaimed, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, and may it happen sooner he might have thrown in. Jonah knew God would forgive Nineveh if they repented, and they did, and God did. That warning of coming judgment brought about repentance. Merciful repentance. We're going to listen to Dr. Doriani again as he tells us a very encouraging fact about Capernaum. He says this, Capernaum saw the works of Christ, but for a while remained unmoved. I, I say for a while, for Capernaum was the center of Christianity by A.D. 50, 55. That is, Jesus' plain speech, His woe, His word of judgment was effective. Capernaum eventually repented. We can be undaunted Christians because even to a world that hated and crucified Him, Jesus extends His undying love. We're still in the day We're still working the light of the freely offered grace of God. This is mercy, this is glory, that God would be patient with the world that rejects Him. Yes, there is still time to flee from the coming judgment. So Christian, be sobered, but be encouraged. You have been found by grace. Go, preach the gospel to the nations and make disciples. Let's pray. Lord, it's easy to be lulled to sleep by our nice church, our nice communities, we still see the the effects of Christianity in our nation. Civility and law and order in many ways are reflections of the work you've done in founding our nation. Principles that have saved our nation, many woes. But Lord, we're aware those things are